0: by stay with sense fidelium I'm coming at you with some history that you probably have never heard of about the war the Mexican War which was an unjust war which many presidents have actually talked about especially after it was after the fact but Dr Michael hogan wrote a book called the Irish soldiers of Mexico and there was a movie one man's hero one one man's hero what is that the name right. uh with Tom Beringer if you're Remember uh, Major League, the movie? He was the catcher in the in the movie Major League, but they made a movie of these guys called the San Patricios. So Dr. Hogan, appreciate you coming on doing this and yeah, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. <laughs> good morning, it's
1: afternoon here in Guadalajara. Thank you, Steve, for your invitation. <laughs> well, the Irish soldiers of Mexico is a story of a group of men who fought on the Mexican side during the U.S. invasion of 1846-48. They were members of an artillery unit uh, called Los San Patricios, as you said, or the soldiers of St. Patrick. Uh And they saw action in every uh, battle of the Mexican War. They were captured after the Battle of Churubusco by the American forces in August of 1847. And 50 of them were executed in what was the largest hanging affair in the history of North America. So in my book was the inspiration for two major documentaries, and as you pointed out, a MGM feature film starring Tom Berenger and Daniela Romo called One Man's Heroes. <clears throat> well, the 1840s were not so distant that we can't identify. It was a time of a surgeon in reading in the U.S. Edgar Allan Poe was the Stephen King of his day, writing horror stories and detective stories, as well as. A few memorable poems like The Raven. Henry David Thoreau was hanging out at Walden Pond. And he would not only protest against the war, but would write Civil Disobedience, uh, a work which influenced later generations, including Gandhi and Martin Luther King. In new technologies, the Royal Typewriter was introduced, the Singer sewing machine. The Telegraph would carry the latest news of the war to newspapers throughout the world. This was the first... Uh, on the spot war reporting in the history of the world. Trains and steamships would carry people and freight to distant cities. But there was a dark side as well, as you remember from, from history, the great famine in Ireland. Uh-huh. And when this occurred in the 1840s, over a million Irish landed on our shores. <clears throat> now the country was already feeling a bit crowded. Um, it was pretty much jammed in the, in the Northeast. And many people felt we should expand westward, even though a lot of that land belonged to Native Americans, and a large swath of it was actually Mexican territory. One newspaper man said it was the manifest destiny for the U.S. to conquer the whole continent and push the Indians out of the way and push the Mexicans out of the way if they're in the way as well. Uh The poet, Walt Whitman, writing for a New York newspaper, said, what does miserable, inefficient Mexico have to do with those whose destiny is is the new world? It is our obligation as a more noble race to overcome her. And manifest destiny is an interesting concept. Manifest means you you don't have to prove it. (laughs) It's It's a done deal. But it was also a time of rabid anti-Catholicism. And this is in very few books, You know, certainly not in any books about the Mexican War. But America was essentially a Protestant nation and it viewed Catholics with suspicion and felt that Catholic immigrants would be more loyal to the Pope in Rome than to any leadership in the Americas. They thought Catholics were unfit to be citizens. And when they arrived in the new world, they were treated with contempt and relegated to slums overflowing with sewerage and vermin. When they tried to build churches or organize schools, they were sometimes attacked, and churches were burned. Even convents were burned. In Philadelphia in 1844, Catholic parents were attacked when trying to enroll their kids in school. Several were killed and hundreds injured. Two Catholic churches were burned to the ground. The bishops suspended all services, and barricaded himself in his home as Protestant mobs roamed the streets looking to kill him as well. So there's a plaque in the suburbs of Mexico City, a place called San Angel, with the names of over 70 Irishmen. The the inscription reads, dedicated to the memories of the St. Patrick's Battalion who gave their lives in the unjust US invasion of 1846-48. The names are like Sullivan, O'Reilly, Kelly, Hogan, Cassidy, Murphy, McClellan, among others. How they came to be in Mexico, how they were tortured and hanged, why it took so long for this history to be written is the story of, I'm gonna relate today. First of all, there was the Irish famine, and then the immigration, and then the poverty, the discrimination, the overcrowding, the unemployment. In Boston, for example, the death rate of children, Irish children, was 10 times that of Anglo-Americans. Uh, prejudice in the US in those days was not only based on race, but religion. <clears throat> America as an Anglo-Protestant country defined itself not by what it was. As a matter of fact, it really didn't define itself by what it was. It had three different uh, national anthems at the time. at <laughs> O Columbia, Yankee Doodle, <laughs> and the Star Spangled Banner. And, and actually, Yankee Dill was more popular than the other two. Um, people in the North didn't consider themselves Americans. They considered themselves down, Downeasters or Bostonians or New Yorkers. People in Virginia, as you know from the Civil War, which occurred 20 years later, considered themselves Virginians, not Southerners. That, that was not a term that was in, in common use, right. or, or even Americans. <clears throat> so it was a country that defined itself by what it was not, and it considered Indians, Negroes, Celtic people, Asians, Catholics, Jews, as not only inferior, <clears throat> but unevolved. In addition, the pseudoscience of phrenology, which measured skulls, showed the Irish, Negroes, and Indians ought to be inferior. And, and uh, this was in the high school text in Boston at the time in 1845. So Manifest Destiny, what exactly was was Manifest Destiny anyway? Well, from the arrival of the Puritans in Salem in the early 1600s, they they call it Salem because it was the new Jerusalem, right? These Anglo-Protestants considered their new world a city on a hill. They were anti-monarchist, anti-hierarchical, which is really important because the Catholic Church was hierarchical, and very different from Europe. They believe that God intended the, this new country to expand from sea to shining sea. Yeah. While they came for their own religious liberty, they did not come for religious liberty for everybody. They came for religious liberty for themselves. <clears throat> yeah. So again, it was it was manifest. No need to prove it. It was obvious. Divine a, a destiny man, it was willed by a higher power. No way to stop it. And in the 1830s, a group of American immigrants settled in in the Texas uh, state of, uh, in the Mexican state of Coahuila, Texas. Now, those areas were kind of underpopulated, and the Mexican government invited them to come and set up ranches. But they had some provisions. Number one, the immigrants had to be Catholics because it was a Catholic country. Number two, they couldn't bring any slaves with them. And number three, except for one personal weapon, they couldn't bring any shipments of rifles with them because they might want to overthrow the government. <clears throat> well, they violated all of these <clears throat> all of these terms and eventually rose up against the Mexican government and declared their independence in 1836. And they established a new country called the Lone Star Republic, or the Republic of Texas. Well, they were very nervous uh, after they open this new country because they didn't really have a very big army. Um, Mexico did. And, and, and they thought, well, at some point Mexico might decide to take back this land that we got. So they petitioned to become a state of the Union. That way they'd have the backing of the U.S. Army. And in 1845 they did. And the new president, President Polk said, well, this Destiny is a pretty cool idea. Uh, Let me see if I can buy California and New Mexico. And that would really expand the United States from sea to shining sea. And he sent ambassadors to Mexico to buy those. As a matter of fact, he offered uh, $25 million for California and uh, $15 million for New Mexico. And Mexico refused because it was not popular for any president. He wouldn't get reelected. He might even get kicked out of office to sell off. (laughs) you know, a third of his country. (laughs) So they said no. Well, Polk wouldn't accept no for an answer. And he decided, well, I'll send Zachary Taylor and Army south to kind of put a little pressure on the Mexican government. So he sent them to the border, which at that point was the Rio Mlesias, which is up around San Antonio. Well, the Mexicans still didn't uh, give in. So he said, you know what? Taylor, go ahead all the way down to the Rio Grande. Now at this point, they're in Mexican territory, and Taylor himself, General Taylor himself, said this is an unnecessary provocation of a neighboring a neighboring country. But nevertheless, you know, he went, and he followed his orders, and when they got to the Rio Grande, uh, a small cavalry unit attacked some of his men, and uh, several were killed, and. Uh, Immediately, Polk declared, since American blood was shed on American soil, a state of war exists between the United States and Mexico. So there was no congressional vote for the war. In other words, Polk says the war already exists. The soldiers are already there on the ground. If you vote against you know, supporting it, then you're anti-American. You're voting to you know, abandon our soldiers who are already at war. Um, it's just a matter of you know, it's just a matter of affirming that that you know the fact that already exists. Oh, yeah. So it was really interesting, you know. It was a, it was a war that that uh, that Abraham Lincoln later said was completely fraudulent. Uh, it was based on false false intelligence. we heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> false intelligence and by a president who lied, who lied several times <laughs> to Congress. But <clears throat> meanwhile the Irish immigrants who had been unable to find work joined the army. And there was no suspicion at that time that this Anglo-Protestan army was poised to invade Mexico of Catholic country. And when they discovered this, many deserted, including John Riley, who was an artillery man who had previously been a sergeant in the British Army in Canada and about 40 others. And they joined the Mexicans and as, as you mentioned, uh, Steve, they formed their own special battalion called the San Patricios, the soldiers of St. Patrick.
0: They had a bunch of anti-Catholic stuff at the Army, too, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, one of the interesting things is that by the time the war finally moved into Mexico, the Army, which had been 100% uh, uh, Protestant and and uh, and, and uh, Anglo, was now about... Uh, 40, 48 to fifty-two percent uh Irish Catholic and German Catholic. And um, many of them petitioned that, you know, for for a Catholic chaplain. Uh-huh. And they said, no way, you know, no, no, not only we're not gonna give you a Catholic chaplain, but here's the King James Bible, yeah. and he the uh, you know, and that's what you're gonna be reading if you want, if you want any religious instruction. Um <clears throat> while the while the uh well, the troops were stationed in Newport Rhode Island at Fort Adams, a preparatory to going over, over to Mexico. Um, they asked if they could go into town to, to St. Mary's Church, you know, where John F. Kennedy got married. They could go into St. Mary's to a Catholic Mass. And they said, no, 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 you'll, you' you know, you'll get fifty lashes if you try to do that, buddy so 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 it was not only there was no Catholic chaplain, and you know half the army was Catholic. Um, they were not allowed to attend services, and um, and and they were given the King James Bible to read if they wanted to read some <laughs> spiritual spiritual work. So anyway, um, the conflict on the border, and and now we have we have the San Patricios in the country, um, and it was a small it was a small battalion. But they were uh, cannoneers; they were experienced artillerymen, and uh, they put up a pretty, pretty good fight when when the army uh, invaded the uh, you know, the city of Monterey. And they were actually probably winning the Battle of Monterey because they were outgunning the uh, you know the Gringos at that point. But but the U.S. Army was using the cathedral as a focal point to gauge their the distance of their artillery, and unbeknownst to them, I hope, but but maybe not, the Mexican general had taken all the civilians and put them in the cathedral for their protection because that was the sturdiest structure in the in in the town. Um, so as the civilians began to die, he surrendered the uh, he surrendered the city. <clears throat> At this point. At this point, many more uh, Irish Catholics deserted um, because they had seen what had happened. You know, not only attacking the cathedral, but the murder of of civilians. I saw and that. And by the, the end of by the end of when they moved out of Monterey, instead of forty uh, soldiers, there were the shows you well over two hundred.
0: I think I saw in your book that you mentioned that this war had the most deserters of any war ever.
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. There were 5,280 deserters, yeah, uh, which is the most of any war. But even more ironic is, um, only the San Patricios were uh, were put to death. <laughs> no one else. Only the San Patricios were were whipped at the stakes. You know. Interesting. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, all the other deserters were pardoned at the end of the war so that they could participate in the Civil War, (laughs) (laughs) because they needed the bodies. So so the next major battle was the Battle of Buena Vista. And the San Patricios, again, uh, behaved very valiantly. And they received awards for valor. And then the invasion of Veracruz, where the US Navy uh, sent a fleet to Veracruz, which is on the coast. to To invade, so you had you had a pension movement going to Mexico City, and finally at the entrance to Mexico City, the Battle of Chiribusco, which was the final battle, and and um, a spark ignited the uh, ammunition dump at the you know, the Mexican ammunition dump and blew up all their all their cartridges, so they were out of ammunition, and they fought with bayonets until finally. An American captain raised a white flag and and surrendered uh, for them. Um, One of the interesting things that happened, because I teach Mexican students often, they say, well, were there any heroes in the Mexican War? (laughs) We don't, because it's it's, it's a war that that the Mexicans don't want to talk about either. Because while it was shameful for us, it was equally shameful for them, they felt, because they lost. And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, when the Mexican uh, uh, general was approached by General Twiggs, who was the, the American in command, and, and he asked, uh, you know, the Mexican, he says, uh, where's your ammunition park? <laughs> and, uh, and Pedro Anaya, who was the Mexican general, said, si tuve, si tuve un parque, ustedes no estarían aquí. If I had an ammunition park, you wouldn't be here. Um, so it showed his his courage and his integrity um, at the end, um, and you know I tell this story to 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 Mexican kids because many of them feel like their country was 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 shamed by this episode, but I, I tell them it's no shame to lose uh, when you're confronting with a you know higher force or greater force. Uh, the Irish, for example, lost the 1916 <laughs> the 1916 Rising, you know. In, in, in actual physical terms, but in, in general terms, I think it was a victory in a number of ways. <clears throat> but anyway, to make a long story short, uh, at the end of um, you know this battle, the shows who survived were arrested. And in September, they were put on trial, <clears throat> court-martialed. Now, those that had, had deserted prior to the war the court-martial decided that uh, their punishment should be whipping at the stake, uh, 50 lashes um, and then uh, hard, (coughs) then uh, a branding with a D for deserter on their cheek and then um, hard labor with a, uh, with an oxen collar around their neck the whole time until the end of the war. And those that, those that had deserted after war was declared, it was the death penalty. Now a couple of things are important. When you desert during wartime, it is the death penalty, but it's by firing squad. Hanging <coughs> is reserved only for spies, people behind the lines without a uniform on, while well, those who have raped you know, female civilians. And, and the San who were neither of those. They were in Mexican uniforms. So. They should have been shot by firing squad. Second, the the uh, the court martial uh, manual of the day, Bayard's Court Martial, eighteen forty five, says uh, if you desert prior to a war, your your punishment should be one of three things: one, up to up to fifty lashes, no more than fifty lashes, or branding with indelible ink on the cheek or hard labor. Well San Patricio has not only got all three, but instead of branded by ink, they branded them with a hot, uh, white hot uh brandon iron that you brand cows with. I think you said they lost count of
0: the lost count of the the whippings.
1: <laughs> yeah you know they actually they actually couldn't get a you know a US soldier to do the whipping. So they got muleteers, you know, what? what they called in those days um, uh, was Jimmy uh, Teamsters. They got Teamsters who were who were like the, uh, you know, the, black, the you know the black the uh, the uh, black what do you call them? the uh, you know the support troops the civilian support troops, yeah, like they have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know. Um, so, so anyway they, you, know, they, you know that's who they got to to do the actual whipping there were, there were no soldiers that would that would agree to do that <clears throat> as a matter of fact witnesses said that john riley who was branded twice by by the way because the first one was upside down and the colonel said branded a second time is branded twice and 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 they lost count uh, allegedly of how many uh stro- strokes he got. But when they finished, his back looked like carne cruda, which is, you know, raw, raw meat. Anyway, uh, that was the story. And it's the largest territorial war in the history of the United States. It's the least known, the least discussed. Um, with the Treaty of Hidalgo, uh, U.S. occupied Mexico City. And they collected all the revenues. They collected all the mine, you know, the mine payments. They collected all the import and export taxes. Um, And we got Arizona, Lower Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, parts of Colorado, Kansas, and Wyoming. Half of Mexican territory, over 2 million square kilometers, or 760,000 square miles. The largest territory war in the United States. In 1990, when I began my research, there was only one corollary work on the subject. By Robert Rao Miller, who used no Mexican documents. He called them deserters and drunks. And he didn't examine the religious or race questions. He called the punishments typical for that area. Well, <laughs> one of the things I did was I wrote to Professor Miller and I, I shared my research with him. And he wrote me back and I. I mentioned him in the introduction, and he was very generous. He said, you know, one of the things I most regret is that I did not, you know, research the religious aspect, you know, of this this war. But he said part of the reason was that none of the American documents had anything about it. (laughs) And the reason was that religion was not an excuse for desertion, you know. What well, was an excuse for desertion was drunkenness. I got drunk and you know I just uh, didn't get back in time, and the Mexicans took me into their service. Um, so you know that was that was one thing. The other thing, he you know uh, I discovered that that uh, you know that that general uh, uh, general where was it General Winfield Scott who is the officer in charge in Mexico City, had a meeting after the San Patricias were hanged. And he said, let this be a lesson to all of our soldiers, both Catholic and Protestant, that we will bear with no desertions. Well, if religion was not an issue, why even mention that? You know, Um, of course it was an issue. Um,
0: You mentioned uh, the desertion, Santa Anna was actively sending letters to them to come in, right?
1: Yeah, actually, Santa Anna was, and and um, uh, you know because the desertions continued to pace, there were desertions up to August of eighteen forty seven, and remember the surrender occurred in in late August. So you know, one of them, I'm going to quote from it here, <clears throat> and it's and it's likely that that John Riley uh, actually probably penned this this. Um, a broadside, which was, you know, uh, you know, distributed to the American American soldiers, and it reads: "Can you fight by the side of those who put fire to your temples in Boston and Philadelphia? Did you witness such dreadful crimes and sacrileges without making a solemn vow to our Lord? If you are Catholic, the same as me, if you follow the doctrines of our Savior, why are you murdering your brethren?" Why are you antagonistic to those who defend their country and your own God? So, you know what was really interesting at this time—they were over from 1840 to 1848. There were over 500 books on the dangers of Catholicism to the Republic. So they obviously had had strong motivations. Um, and, and and they were Catholic motivations. The other thing I want to mention, you know, and this is you know this is relevant today because there is some discussion in Rome, both pro and con, about uh, Saint Francis, uh, uh, Pope Francis, Pope Francis' latest letter about the uh, about the Latin Mass. Well, of course, in 1846, all the masses were in Latin, and the great advantage of this was that it was. A universal language that no matter where you went, whether you're in Mexico or Japan or uh, you know, England or Switzerland, you heard the same mass always. So you know the Mexicans made the San Patricios feel right at home when when the when the, uh, the Irishmen went to, went to went to Mexican church. It wasn't some kind of Mexican ceremony they listened to. It was the same mass they would have heard in Ireland. The same hymns, the Ave Maria, the Pater Noster, the uh, the uh, Tantum Ergo. I mean, all of these, all of these uh, uh, prayers and hymns, they knew because they knew them from childhood. Many of them were obviously altar boys as well, so they felt very comfortable, you know, with their Catholic faith. And um, also, you know, I, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe was was their Lady of Knock, you know, mm-hmm. that. Uh, that uh, you know, she was their the guide and their protector, their 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 interceder with with Jesus Christ, so, <laughs> and they felt very much part of the you know the mystical body of Christ. And this, I think, was it was you know for me still is the importance of the Latin Mass, this this universality of it, and, and, and of course the beauty of the language and the beauty of all the uh, you know hymns and and, and and such that go with it.
0: you mentioned the uh, the hanging. They didn't hang them like you think about. They made it even worse. They they didn't drop them. They almost kind of like let them just dangle there or off the ground. And there was, Wasn't there something interesting about the last group about them facing the was it the yeah. cathedral? <clears throat> yeah, what they did
1: was they lowered them on onto carts um, and, and they had the last uh, 30 they had they had them on, uh, I guess maybe five or six different carts, and and uh, they had horses or mules to pull the carts away. Then they they put them in nooses, and they uh, stood them up on these carts with the nooses around their neck on a hill opposite uh, Chapultepec, which was where the last battle of the war was was fought. Chapultepec Castle, which was their West Point. It was mostly young cadets defending him. <clears throat> and the colonel who was in charge of it said, uh, when, that, when the American flag goes up over Chapultepec, then and only then will we'll, uh, we'll we salute it with your deaths. So he brought them out about six o'clock in the morning and hooked them up with the, uh, you know, with the, with the nooses on the back of these wagons. And and had had men holding the horses in place so that they wouldn't bolt, and they stood in the hot sun from 6 a.m. to about 10 a.m. when the uh, flag finally went up, showing the surrender of uh, the castle, and uh, then he had the horses slowly move away, leaving the men hanging. But uh, you know the necks didn't break; they strangled to death, and some it took you know several minutes for them to die.
0: Are monuments? I've heard there's a bunch of monuments in Mexico of these guys.
1: Well, what's interesting is, you know, one of the things I've often said, um, you know, to my kids, uh, you know, can can, can a book change how we see or how we don't see history? And and it was really interesting to me. Here I am, you know, a relatively unknown person, you know, teaching in a high school in Mexico. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, Tom Berenger calls me from Hollywood <coughs> you know to ask if I'd be a historical advisor on a, on a film so prior to this book there was only a little plaque in the furniture store in San Ando. but a year after the publication of Irish Soldiers in 1997 there was a documentary made by Jason Ho um who is the the whole brothers uh did um, uh, Platoon, that movie. Beringer was in that as well. So the, the, the documentary is called The Soldiers of St. Patrick. Uh, the next year, the Mexican Postal Department and the Irish Post Office issued a joint commemorative stamp of the St. Patrick Battalion. Oh. The following year 1999 was an MGM movie star Tom Berenger called One Man Zero. That same year, there was a musical CD in Ireland with Ry Cooter and the Chieftains, also called the San Patricios. The next year in Mexico City, the Mexican, Federal Mexican Congress uh, put in gold letters, Heroes of the Republic, the San Patricio Battalion in their their Congress on the wall. Um, uh, A guy named Sean Cassidy uh, made a San Patricio tequila and an 1847 tequila to commemorate them. Another documentary was made just recently called The Search for John Riley um, and what might have happened to him uh, after, after the war. A bust of John Riley was erected in Mexico City as a gift of the Irish government and a memorial was erected in Clifton Galway, his birthplace, as a gift of the Mexican government. So the last known words of Riley in response to a former employer in Canada who wrote, why are you still living in Mexico, John? After all the nonsense you had to go through. And it seems to be a very dangerous and barbaric place, Mexico. And Riley wrote back, do not be deceived by a country which has been at war with Mexico. There are people among the most hospitable on earth, I know of no other which is as welcoming, especially to a Catholic and an Irishman. And, and the solidarity between Mexico and Ireland as a result of this, you know, that's why I mentioned 1916, where the, you know, the, the Irish lost, but, but in the end they kind of won. Yeah. And now the solidarity between Mexico and Ireland has resulted in new trade, cultural relationship, massive use of Mexican cement for Dublin construction, Scholarships for Mexican students, to Trinity and NUI Galway, cultural exchanges between the two countries, Irish dance schools in Guadalajara in Mexico City, Irish pipe band in Mexico City, a San Patricio Mariachi group in Dublin. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, all of these things have come together. Um a few years after I wrote this book, I was I was asked by my principal to take a group of Mexican students, we have a program called Week Without Walls, to send, take them to uh, to Washington, D.C., as part of the Week Without Walls. And we got there, and one of the things we saw was the obelisk of the Washington Monument. Uh-huh. And uh, as we were looking at it, you know, the guide told us, he says, you'll notice there's two different colors of uh, of marble on the Washington Monument he said that's because they suspended construction of it during the Mexican war they said after the mexican war we got we got marble from a different place from, from new england from vermont he said it's a little different color they said but also the meaning of the monument changed before it was simply a monument to washington to washington but after the war it became a monument to our dominance of the americas oh wow and uh, yeah, and, and, I, and I, was, I was standing with a group of Mexican students, and I thought, boy, that's a pretty insensitive thing to say, you know? You think? <laughs> and, and I ended my book by saying, you know, I said, my dream is that one day the Washington Monument, instead of being a phallic symbol of hemispheric dominance, will instead be a beacon of welcome and understanding.
0: How how is it? um, There's no flags that is found or bodies. Did they just basically like sweep it underneath the rug? I mean, how'd you how'd you stumble upon? Because there's I think you wrote in the book. There's you can't find any banners. You wrote some uh, some uh, tips or somebody gave you some tips. They like at the museums. There's no flags. Uh, The bodies are buried or just wherever they are. Mm -hmm. There's there's like no remnants of it, right?
1: Very, very few when you compare it with our Civil War. I mean, there's actually, you know, nothing next to nothing. <clears throat> One of the interesting things, though, when I went to the, uh, to the military archives, that was during my visit with the, uh, you know, with the Mexican kids. I went to the military archives and I asked the clerk, I said, do you have anything on the Irish battalion? Uh, you know, because they, they told me in the National Archives they didn't. There was no such thing as an Irish battalion. <laughs> he goes, no, no, there, there is such a thing. He said, but none of it's filed. He said, it's just all in the loose papers and in, in boxes, yeah. <laughs> in, in cardboard boxes. And I said, could I take copies of this stuff? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, I forgot what it was then. It was something like a dollar a copy or 50 cents a copy. They he said, and you're looking at maybe, you know, 3,000 pages. Wow. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God. I said, I can't afford that. I'm a teacher in Mexico. So he said, well... Leave me your information. I'll see what I can do. (laughs) And his name was Michael Pilgrim. So several months went by. I almost forgot about it. But finally, I got a call. He said, this is Michael Pilgrim from the the Military Archives in Washington, D.C. I said, yeah. He said, how does uh, 3995 sound? I said, what? He said, I put everything on microfiche for you. So you know there are people who are just genuine, you know, decent human beings. Yeah, and, yeah. And, so I couldn't have done half of it without his help. The second one I thought was kind of good was was um, uh, Jaime Flaherty, who's a, he's dead now, but he was a, a priest in in uh, in the Mexico City. Um, I was outside the Museum of Intervenciones. The, the, the Museum of, of conquest, essentially. Uh-huh. And, um, and James Fogarty, Jaime, Jaime Fogarty, we called him in Mexico. James Fogarty uh, was outside as well. He was talking to some people. I didn't know him from a hole in the wall.
0: <laughs> but he was a
1: Catholic priest and a missionary. And, and I signed all the documents and gave my passport and all to get into the museum and to do some research. And they turned me away. So I was coming back out and I was really depressed and Father Fogarty stopped to do some research here or not. And I said, no, looks looks like I'm not. He said, why not? I said, they asked me for, you know, what university I represented and where I was working as a professor. And I said, I'm a high school teacher. I'm not representing a university. He said, then they asked me for my wife's passport because she might be joining me. Then they asked me for a letter of recommendation from the secretary of interior and a letter from the military authorities and i said i don't have any of that stuff he goes well he said when you filled out the form what did you put down where it said country of origin and i put usa he said no he said come back tomorrow at shift change and he said when you fill out the document again this time where it says country of origin put ireland So next day I came back and it said, País de Alien. I put it on the and they said, Pasole, senor, pasole. I said, see, you don't need to see my pet. no, no, pasole, come on in, come on in. And they not only let me in, but they gave me a um a, a mozo, a handyman with a with a uh with a, uh, with a uh, pry bar to open up any boxes I found in the basement. And in the basement, of course, I discovered a cache of of U.S. weapons that had been captured prior to the prior to the end of the war. Oh wow, yeah, it was really neat. And and on the on the stock of the rifles, it said um, Harper's Ferry, 1847. And they were brand new rifles wrapped in uh, oil cloth, you know. And I said, "Can I take a picture of these?" And he said, you go ahead." And I said, "How did these come to be buried in the church? You know, the bottom of the church." And they said, we have no idea. We didn't even know they were here. <laughs> so I sent the pictures to uh, the head ranger at the uh, Harpers Ferry. Uh-huh. And he wrote me back and he said, you just solved the great mystery. And I said, what in the world was that? And he said, well, we knew these guns were stolen back in 1847. Uh, but we didn't know who had stolen them or where they ended up. And he said, but now you've shown it was the Guatemalans that the uh, I said, I, "How did I do that?" <laughs> they said, "Well, they had a blockade at at, at uh, veracruz so no ships could get by. Mm-hmm. You know, unless they went through the blockade. And the only ones who let through the blockade were the Guatemalans because they were fighting a civil war. But evidently, these were Guatemalan gun runners. Yeah. And when they brought the guns back up to Mexico, the war was over. So huh. you know, the Mexicans just buried them in the." in the church uh, basement. And that's where they were for 150 years. Oh, wow. Well,
0: <laughs> doctor, tell them, where can they find the book? Uh, you got a website?
1: <laughs> well, the best place, and I think the cheapest, because I best to keep the price down, is is uh, is Amazon. Uh-huh. And
0: you got michaelhogan.com, I think it is, uh, drmichaelhogan.com. It right. uh, links to Amazon on the website, easy to find. So in case you can't type it in uh, correctly on Amazon, uh, I'll have it linked in the show notes underneath, along with the movie. I uh, might have it at the end of the film any, uh, End of this episode, <laughs> Just click a link. Um, Doc, any final? Wait a second. So Doc, any final words for people out there?
1: Well, I, th- I think one of the really interesting things is that. There's a saying by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He said, "When you do your work quietly and well, unknown friends will find you, and angels will surround you." And and that's been the story of this of this the journey of this book. You know, when I began, the manuscript was rejected by just about everybody, uh, including you know, including uh, Oxford University, which expressed an interest at the time. Uh, all the presses in the United States. When it was finally you know, published, uh, uh, Texas refused to add it to their curriculum because they considered it anti-American. Uh, when the documentary came out, the, uh, the History Channel uh, paid a kill fee so the documentary wouldn't be shown in the United States. I mean, there was just so many things against this book ever getting out there. And now it's had uh, four editions in English, uh, two in Spanish. <laughs> Two <laughs> in Spanish and been another one on Kindle uh-huh. in Mexico and Ireland, you know, consecutively for for I guess 15, 20 years, every every St. Patrick's Day, every March. And as I say, it's really, you know, bonded uh Mexicans and Irish people and, and their governments and offered all kinds of opportunity for young people. So you know, do you work quietly and well and unknown friends will find you. I think that's the message.
0: No, that's, I mean, how I found you. I mean, I was I was reading years ago, Liberty to God that failed by uh, Chris Ferrara. And he mentioned the San Patricians. Just on our page, talked about how these guys were, they look across the river and they see the <laughs> bells ringing, nuns walking. Uh, be- they added beautiful women <laughs> and priests. And they're going, maybe we're on the wrong side and i was like who are these guys i never heard of these and led me to your book led me to the movie i was going oh we got to talk more about these guys (laughs) so anyway doc appreciate your time uh that was fantastic uh and uh yeah man thanks a link will be underneath for the show notes get the book uh just yeah take a take a good look at the sign patricios well thank you doc thank you steve Uh,